Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. It takes something truly special and groundbreaking to become iconic in popular culture. To be able to touch an audience in such a way with a song, a book, a painting, or a movie is a momentous occasion, especially when that audience is eager to keep coming back for more and more and more. In 1978, a little movie originally working under the title of The Babysitter Murders went into production to be ready for a release around Halloween. But the producer thought he had a better title, and that producer, Mustafa Akkad, proved to be right. Halloween opened up an entirely new direction in cinematic horror, and its influence has never lessened to this very day. Neither have its sequels. I've lost count of the various sequels to Halloween, but up until last year at this time, they were ceaseless. And now they have apparently come to a close, though a wise man once said, never say never particularly for a Halloween sequel. This is the 45th anniversary of the original Halloween, and we are here to celebrate its importance, its delights, and its groundbreaking appearance in American and international horror culture. Director John Carpenter had created a couple of independent films that drew attention. Dark Star, which was originally his USC film school thesis film, and Assault on Precinct 13, before Halloween launched him into the stratosphere. But John was no one-trick pony. He also created what many, including me, consider the greatest monster movie of all time, The Thing, in addition to such classics as The Fog, They Live, Starman, and many, many more. This, our seventh season, is going to be our last. We will be ending the postmortem podcast at the end of this year. So it seemed important to me that we have one of our very favorite guests help us start to wind things up. John Carpenter is with us today to help mark the anniversary of his towering achievement because it's about time we catch up with the master himself. John, good to see you. Mick, you too, man. What's happening? It's been way too long. Well, there's a lot happening with you. Um, <sighs> you know, not just musically, and we'll we'll get into Halloween, but John Carpenter's Suburban yeah. Nightmares. Screams. Screams, Suburban, suburban screams. screams. How did I get that yeah, wrong? That's right. That's so right. Th let's start with the newest thing. What is this? This is a reality show, right? It is. It, it is kind of a hybrid deal. It's a reality show about uh, true stories about the survivors of uh, horrible things happening to them horrible things in their neighborhoods in their uh in the suburbs and uh i decided i've never done that before that's something challenging taking somebody's real life story and so i do the reenactments oh great uh, so you shot them yourself yeah oh yeah oh, well excellent well but not only that i uh i i directed remotely so oh, this, really yeah this is a first for me and it's really great he, i sat in the comfort of my living room <laughs> directed the cast and crew in prague wow and, oh yeah Interesting. so uh, this is a dramatic recreation this is not like a documentary footage well we have uh interviews with the real life subject real life beth talks to us tells us her story and then i uh, go out and reenact them with a, an actress interesting so yeah. was this an idea of your own or did someone come and pitch it to you or did a network come and pitch it to you someone came and pitched it to me and said what do you think about this i'd never done anything like this before and I thought, well, this is an interesting challenge and it also isn't that 
it it doesn't kill me in terms of time, you know. In this five, it was five day shoot, and I could sh- d- d- direct right from my living room. Which all this stuff is great. So I decided, why not? And off I went. I s- scored it myself. So uh, wow. all mine. There you go. Well, you're doing more music than ever lately. Aside from the Lost Themes albums, you've scored three. Halloween movies, the David Gordon Green movies. You scored the Firestarter remake. Tell me about that, being a composer for hire. It's awesome, man. Let me tell you. Well, first of all, I get to work with uh, my son and godson. Cody and Daniel Davies. That's right. They're just the greatest. And uh, we... We did these scores, and we're gonna we have we're online to do another one in the beginning of the year next year, and um, it'll be it'll be fun to do for us, and hopefully it will enhance the movie. Uh, and you know we're for hire. You want us to do your movie, Mick? Yeah. We're you can hire us. We'll be yeah, ready. Once, once I get hired, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it's been just fabulous, and some, you know, it came along and in the the latter half of latter part of my career, I never thought it would happen. You know, I had sort of have a second act. It's it's act. pretty amazing, and you know, I I saw the Coupe de Ville's playing in Escape from New York at the old Wiltern Theater. And that was an actual live band performance. And it was fucking great. Oh, stop. That was horrifying. (laughs) No, it was really great. But then later I saw you and Cody and Daniel uh, perform in Sitges in Spain at the festival there. And the joy on your face was so overwhelming. Yeah, Yeah. that was real. You know, I was having, you know, I was in heaven. And it's not like... uh, making a movie it does the pressure is not there the the crew is not waiting for you to make decisions you don't have the the idiot actors sorry the actors uh <laughs> making demands and uh you know i had been pretty fed up with all that but uh here we are and uh having a blast yeah, well, we you have you album coming out real quickly here called uh, Anthology Two. The anthologies are uh, we re-record some of the uh, movie music that I did the old days, like The Fog uh-huh. and uh, so forth. So that's coming out. It'll be it'll be fabulous. Just yeah, fabulous. yeah. Well, I I loved it and. Just knowing it's an entirely different discipline for you and your son and and Daniel to get together and you work out the music together, it's all rehearsed, it's all composed, it's all there, and it's just a matter of performing it. That that's it, that's it. And we have a band that uh, that we went out and tour with. This band is unbelievable. It's the Tenacious D Rhythm Section. And, uh, oh, really? That's oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were they're a great band. So um, can't say that I'm uh, disappointed. I've never never thought that I'd perform live in front of people playing music. I know. You're just, a rock star. You're a rock star director and you're a rock star musician. Just stop that now. Don't be talking <laughs> that way. <laughs> I respect you. <laughs> Don't be saying that. No, uh, now, what's it like to be a composer working with a director who has a vision? Now, granted, several of them have been Halloween movies, which nobody knows more about than you. But still, you're working with someone who hopefully has a vision, who is kind of giving you guidelines on what to do as a composer working for and with a, a director. Well, that was the the big deal thing. Uh, David Gordon Green directed the Halloween movies and he he had a very specific vision. He had <clears throat> and he had exactly in his mind what he wanted us to do. That's delightful. You know, we're, we're now we are uh, uh, supporting his vision 
was supporting what he sees. And uh, oh, it was great. I didn't have to make those decisions. It wasn't up to me about the vision and what was finally on the screen. That was his uh, <clears throat> his doing. I was there to support it. I'm sorry. What was, what was his over overarching vision for the Halloween trilogy? Is it something you can put into words? I don't know if it is. It, it, he he reinvented it by uh, dropping certain things and adding certain things. <coughs> oh, sorry. No worries. And, uh, it just it was fascinating. Well, what is very talented, very talented director on his own. Now, and, what uh, about Firestarter, which was something you had no connection to? other than the two degrees of separation with Stephen King. That's um, right. So well, with Firestarter... Now, Mick, that was the movie that I was going to do after the thing. I was going to direct Firestarter. Ah. And they fired me. <laughs> Get your bum out of here, they said. <laughs> so I did. But uh, now I've got the music to it. And it was terrific. Terrific working on it because it's a whole different experience, different director, different script and feeling. Wonderful. So you did have some tie to it, but not a creative tie as yeah. far as creating like Halloween. Since this is the anniversary of Halloween, happy birthday. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. I mean, you started, your father was a composer, conductor, uh, music professor in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's and, right. And so what was your upbringing like as far as it comes to music? Did did you play the piano originally? Were the, those the lessons you started with? I started with the violin, believe it or not. My dad was a violinist. He thought at one point I should, uh, uh, I should learn how to play. There was just one problem. I had no talent. But uh, I struggled and struggled and finally moved on from that. Oh, God, there's some ugly years in there. I mean, <laughs> troubling my violin to school. I was a magnet for bullies, you know. Oh. Idiot kid. Oh, oh boy. <clears throat> but I, when I moved on to piano and then guitar and then into rock and roll, and I, I left the violin behind. And so were you in a lot of bands at that time? Did you go from band to band to band or one specific band? I was in a, uh, a cover band back then. End of high school and college, we played fraternity parties. I learned a great deal about fraternities at these parties. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Animal House was very truthful. <laughs> and these are fraternities that wouldn't have you as a band orchestra kid. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. Oh, <laughs> the debauchery of these guys. Oh, my God. And then but, you go on tour as a rock star and see it firsthand. That's it. But no, I never, never a rock star. But uh, the closest thing I'm ever going to come to it, and it was just it was sensational. I can't tell you what it was like. And we traveled, we, we traveled all over the world, all over Europe. And, uh, in bus, you know, and that was yeah. just amazing, just amazing. <laughs> that is incredible. Now, you and Deborah Hill got together with the idea of Halloween or the babysitter murders. That's right. How, how did that come about? You'd already made a couple of features, one of which was your thesis film for USC. And then you'd had a lot of uh, festival success with Assault on Precinct 13. That's right. But now you've got an idea that is one of those ideas that just sounds like money in the bank. Well, see, but you got to get across, you got to get this in your mind. It's not my idea. See, I, I was over for the British uh, Film Festival and uh, I met with Mustafa Akkad over in England talked about low-budget movies. Now I wanted to direct, and I'm John, blah, 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 blah. And I came back, and Erwin had hooked up. Erwin Yablons had hooked up with Mustafa Akkad. 
and was working Mustafa to put up money for a low-budget movie. And uh, Erwin, the hustler that he is, came up with the idea of the babysitter murders because every teenage girl can relate to that in America. So you weren't going out with a movie. You were just going out no, for no. a deal to make a film. I wasn't going out for anything. They came to me, which is great. It's unbelievable. Of course, I said yes. I just wanted uh, creative control and my name above the title. That was what I wanted out of it. And somehow they said yes. And so we were off and running and uh, hired Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee and just a terrific cast. And uh, Oh, really great. Oh, yeah. And uh, and we made the movie, and the rest is history. History that continues. I mean, there's rarely been a year without a Halloween movie, it seems to be. But the idea was the babysitter murders from one producer, Erwin Yablons, and then Mustafa Akkad, his idea to call it Halloween. Is that what kicked off your writing process with Deborah, or did you already start under the babysitter murders? Hadn't started yet, but that was Irwin's idea. Irwin Yablon's idea to call it Halloween. Aha, I see. That was, a, that was a real genius idea of his. So that that kind of gave me, uh, Deborah and I, the idea of what we could do with the movie. You know, we could set it on Halloween night, and et cetera, and, and make it a fall film and, and try to find some leaves in Southern yeah. California. <laughs> in Pasadena, yeah. Yeah. And Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It didn't find many, but we kept gathering them up, reusing them over and over. And uh, <laughs> Deborah had worked with Dean Cundy, and she said he's, you know, he's just a terrific cameraman. And yeah. that's where he and I met. It was a big relationship there. And uh, my friend uh, from Bowling Green, Tommy Lee Wallace was the art director and the editor of the movie. And we made it. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a tiny budget film. $340,000. Something like that, that. yeah. <laughs> but, and, and it grossed $50 million on its initial release. Something like that. I don't know. You know, those guys, I hate to say this, those guys are pirates, so you can't really trust what they tell you. Yeah, I don't know. Especially if you're not in the union, yeah. yeah exactly. And you're just a bum like I was. But <laughs> it, it uh, did not get great reviews on its first release. It, uh, was, it was panned. Because it was re released regionally. Irwin, Irwin's company. Went across the country with some prints, moved them, moved the prints to the next town. So it didn't come out on Halloween in every market. No, I remember even in no. L.A., it was the first week of November rather than yep. Halloween. That's right. And yeah. And uh, as it went across the country, you know, I started reading these reviews. Wow. Whoa. Ouch. <laughs> rough. <laughs> they were pretty rough. It was one uh, great quote. John Carpenter has no talent with actors. Oh, great. Well, look who's well, been proven wrong, right? Well, I don't know about that, but anyway. I um, do. But then I was making, uh, at the time I was making Elvis, the, the TV movie. Right, with, with and, your friend uh, Kurt Russell. Yeah, met him for the first time. And we were, uh, boy, that was a brutal shoot. Uh, I noticed... A couple of times, some executives from studios and independents came out to see me at lunchtime to visit. And I thought, well, what are they doing out here? Well, apparently, Halloween started making some money. And uh, uh, the word of mouth was spreading on it. So it was a very positive ending. I signed with Abco Embassy to do a couple pictures. And then... I was there for those. Too. You sure were, my friend. Doing publicity. You were. 
and the fog was so fantastic to actually see you do some of the reshoots with Rob Botin doing, bringing it up to an R rating. Because originally you wanted to make a Val Luton PG kind of movie. I did. I did. I've had a lot of bad ideas, Mick. You know? <laughs> really, a lot of bad ideas. Uh, but you've had more good ones. Well, uh, so that's that's the story of Halloween. And and afterwards, you know, they. I didn't want to make sequels. I thought we had didn't have any more stories to tell. But apparently people wanted to see Michael Myers. They wouldn't see him in that mask. Yeah, and, and you chose not to direct any of them but the first one. But I'd like to go back to the writing process. What do you think were the different elements that you and Deborah brought to the script? What were your strengths? What were her strengths in creating what turns out to be a really tight, potent, repulsive script. Uh, well, she wrote the first draft of it, so basically did the did the hard work, and then I took it over and I polished the characters and changed some of the things in there. And uh, I think us working it, you know, we're both low budget people. Deborah was from the low budget, and I was too. That, that we hammered into into. Uh, $340,000 shape because you, you know, you don't know when you start. So, um, uh, she, she did a great job with the female characters and mm. their dialogue. And they're really well written, really well written. And I, I concentrated on, on a pleasantness character, trying mm. to give him some, uh, memorable lines and spooky kind of lines and and uh then off we went well it must have been thrilling for you as a a kid who was raised on hammer films and the like to get donald pleasance involved he was one of my uh, uh my i was a fan of donald from the old days uh mainly from First time I remember him was in uh, The Great Escape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. But, uh, and, and he became a fast friend of mine. I didn't realize how funny a human being he was. Uh, and, uh, you know, at first we weren't, you know, he, he was so much further along in, in movie making than I was. I was terrified of actors, but we finally got, I was on escape from New York, but we finally got uh, to be real close friends. Yeah. What was your process, particularly with Halloween? Did you storyboard? Did you plan everything out? Did you do shot lists? Um, how? What was your plan of attack? Now, as I remember, Mick, I didn't have the storyboards on that one. I, and, it was pretty basic movie, uh, you know. It was it was uh, neighborhoods, walking from one house to another. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, physically difficult to stage, and uh, so I didn't. I just w went out there knowing the story and the script, and uh, having a basic knowledge of what I wanted to do. So the staging took place when you got to the location. That's right. That's right. Well, one of the brilliant things you brought to the genre was the Panaglide. Not most genre films at that time were shot in widescreen, and it gave it a scope that increased the value of the film. It felt like a bigger movie because it was widescreen. And then the Panaglide itself, which was the Panavision version of the Steadicam, just gave it this wonderful, floaty, dreamlike quality that people had not really seen since Stanley Kubrick used it in The Shining. Interesting. Uh, you're right. We That was a big deal to me to to get the, the Panaglide. <clears throat> I tried that sucker on. Oh, I couldn't do it. It was too heavy. Those lenses are killers. But what, what it, I always thought, in in a lot of movies, uh, moving shots were, you know, you had to shooting uh, with a dolly. It was time consuming. 
and we didn't have time. You know, you have to build the track. But Panaglide, you slap it on, and here we go. And plus, we can utilize its dreamy nature, as you say, its floaty feel to approximate a point of view. Right. And in that sense, then you can do, use it as both point of view and as a dolly shot. And it all kind of mixes together. And so you're not really sure what's going to happen. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah, I remember when we were shooting the stand, we carried a Steadicam with us every day. But it was a 16 millimeter shoot um, because it was to go to television. And it didn't matter at that time, pre-HD days. But boy, did it free us up as far as yeah. our movement, our mobility. It's amazing, isn't it? But you also helped create a language in building fear and tension with the use of the Panaglide. It really started to become one of the most used um, tools in creating suspense. So, wow. thanks. You know, I saw, I first saw the Panaglide at work in a movie called uh, in The Exorcist 2. Oh, yeah. And it was a point, of, it was used as a point of view, I remember. I can't remember the shelf why, but it was a, down a ramp, and it just it just flew. And I thought, wow, okay, I know it's not on a dolly, and it's not handheld. How do they do that? Yeah, and I found out. Man. Ah, yeah, that's a beautifully shot film. It's really it gorgeous it looking. People hate the movie. I I kind I know. of yeah. no, but. Uh, that was John Borman too, wasn't it? Yeah, John Borman. He, he was, was on my old Z Channel show, which you were on. We we was showed it? Heretic, Exorcist to the Heretic, and Friedkin came on afterwards to talk about the Exorcist, and he blasted me and Z Channel for showing mm -hmm. that horrible movie he called the Harry Tick. Well, <laughs> bless he can him. I mean, pretty tough. He can be pretty tough. Hey, do you remember the first time you saw Halloween with an audience? Uh, I remember seeing it at the Writers Guild Theater at the time with a full house, yeah. Of writers, right? Well, I know they weren't. They were just invited people, folks. Uh, the first time uh, it was a, the audience of people I didn't know at all. It wasn't Hollywood people. It was in New York. And I was in an adjoining room listening to them scream. And it was like music to my ears. Wow, listen to that. What is more gratifying than that? Oh, nothing. Well, yeah. playing in the band. Playing in the, <laughs> yeah. playing in the band. So when it came to Halloween 2, um, there right. was the right. desire to recreate by a major studio. Suddenly it's gone from Compass International to Universal buying the rights. And they wanted you, they wanted Deborah, but you didn't want to direct. How did you choose Rick Rosenthal? I It was through uh, my agent who said, take a look at this guy's work. He'd done a short film. And it was effective. And uh, oh, that experience. Writing the script was just, I was brutal. Because I had no no idea, so and, it was like pulling teeth to do it. Huh? Yeah, I didn't have any. Well, what the hell happens? You know, just my lack of imagination in that sense. But and uh, after Halloween two, we went to Halloween three, which was uh, I thought we could branch out, maybe tell a different kind of story, sort of an anthology, do a different Halloween based story. Kinda, yeah, year. yeah. And Nigel Neal had this idea and thought it was really interesting. Kind of mysticism and science fiction together. And really fascinating. But boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it bombed pretty big. And uh, everybody. But, uh, you made the movie that you wanted with the people you wanted to make it with. You had your friend Tommy Lee Wallace directing. That's right. And, and now... It's got a lot more love now than when it came out. Yeah, it does. Do you feel it definitely that? Does. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. definitely it's much better. Much yeah, it's, better. There's a lot of me, people who really like it. 
And, and tell me what you really wanted to do with the Halloween saga. Uh, well, you know, I didn't have a real idea of a direction. You know, I just was, I was floundering because I didn't want to get involved in another retelling of the Michael Myers uh, saga. Hey, come on, guys. We've, <laughs> this poor guy, we've beaten him up and said, him... anyway, but that I was wrong about it. You know, the audience demanded uh, the Michael Myers character. So, and Mustafa Akkad took over after Halloween 3. And uh, he uh, he took it where he wanted to go. Which and was, he went to uh, Dimension, the division of Miramax, and suddenly they made a bunch of sequels, some of them theatrical, but a lot of them went directly to video, if I'm not mistaken. That I don't know. They had to pay me when they made them, so I don't know. <laughs> Beyond that, you weren't involved. They weren't that good. Just to be frank with you, they weren't. There was nothing interesting about them. Have you seen all of the Halloween movies? No, 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 <laughs> no I have not. <clears throat> well, it must have been. It must have been refreshing then when people came in with a lot more respect for the original with Blumhouse really making a big investment in their Halloween sequels, the, the final trilogy. Yeah. And that all started with uh, Malik Akkad, this uh, Mustafa Akkad's son. He had he, his, his dad died and he took over the franchise and he decided to re to re invent it with uh, Jason Blum who's the kind of uh, godfather of modern horror movie. And uh, he's like the Roger Corman of his day. Right. Except he doesn't direct. But and he's got more money. <laughs> he, uh, so uh, uh, I got, you know, with uh, Jason Blum, and he said something really interesting. He said, well, you know, they're going to make this sequel. And uh it would be great if you could come aboard and sort of, I don't know, shepherd it through, be a godfather to it, maybe do the music. They're going to do it with or without you. And so why don't you stop criticizing all the Halloween movies and stand up like a man and actually contribute? <laughs> of course, that's what I did. Then I, I stopped. Uh, I stopped. I stopped making noise from the sidelines. <laughs> well, so how did that relationship work with you and and particularly David Gordon Green, the director? Um, did he come to you with questions? Did you offer input on the script or script notes or uh, or editing notes? Or were you on the set during production? Uh, well, his co co writer was Danny. Uh, fuck his last name. What's his last? The actor McBride, Danny McBride. Yeah, they the two of them came. They talked. We talked about it, and then they wrote the script, and I read it, and then we talked about that. But you know, the way I was, uh, I was trained in in at USC Film School. It's a director's vision, no matter who. If if I write the script and you direct it, it's your movie, it's your vision. And it's, I just back away. So I'm, I'm trained for that and that's fine. Right. So, well, it's, it's, it's like when I do a Stephen King project, if I'm lucky enough to have him around on set, which uh, he has been on several of them, it's such a great resource to be able to go to the creator and say, what about this? Or what would happen if this and so was there any of that kind of experience with david or he had no, his vision in mind and no. he knew what he was doing he knew what he was doing they don't need me to tell him they don't need me for anything but way old man <laughs> were there any times where you walked in and said i've got this idea what if no 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 i know better than that i know much better. <laughs> i am better than that i i visited the set which is really interesting they he ran his set so different than I do. And I watched him shoot a scene and um, had dinner with Jamie, had dinner with Malik. And uh, 
This was in Charleston, South Carolina. Hmm. I think of South Carolina. Beautiful location. Yeah, Charleston. Oh, it is. It is. Um, and uh, but I think Kills, the second one, is just a great movie. I love that movie. Yeah. That's my favorite of the three. I just think it kicks ass. Wow. Yeah. Well, when the original Halloween proved to be so successful, um, you were doing Elvis, as you said. So you did two TV movies. You did uh, Someone Is Watching Me yeah. and, and Elvis. So what was the difference between jumping from these three independent movies into network television, where there are all kinds of rules? Yeah. Uh, well, the hardest thing... It's just the schedules in TV are just so short. And so you just have to prepare. But it turns out I couldn't really prepare on Elvis because it was a huge script. It was three hours. Right. Of 108, no, 120 locations, 180 speaking parts. Wow. And uh, it was a period film. Uh, I and you had <laughs> live performances to record, yeah. And we had thirty days. And, wow! Uh, I, I, oh, I was dead at the end, of, just dead. But it was a baptism of fire. I learned a whole bunch, and uh, met Kermit, of course, and met. Uh, Anyway, uh, it was it was fantastic, a fantastic well, learning experience, and we did really well on TV. So, yeah, I mean, both of those movies are really terrific and highly regarded. And Lauren Hutton is so great in some of the great. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. It's a very suspenseful TV movie, and at that time, the directors in television movies were just any TV movie directors. They weren't people who loved or specialized in genre. They would I do know. a Western, they'd do a thriller, they'd do a horror story. But you were someone who got his bones that way and was really somebody trained in formal and informal filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I don't, well, I just, look, I, I, luck has played a huge role in my career, an enormous role. It's like this guy, idiot guy staggers into the various things. And uh, that was one, you know, that experience was great. Uh, and except for the hard work, Elvis was great. Oh, God. <laughs> it seemed to have memories of monkeys on your back. <laughs> well, I remember we had shot the, the, the big uh, Elvis finale. Kurt was in, in, you know, the jumpsuit and he was, doing a show we shot that and watching dailies and i was so tired i fell asleep during them <laughs> <laughs> they finish up and i said how was it <laughs> <laughs> oh man but anyway not enough complaining i have nothing to complain about no That's well i am so proud to have been able to bring you back into television in a <laughs> way that you know on masters of horror where my job was basically to just protect you and keep the demons from the door and let you do what you want to do. You know, Mick, that was just a genius idea of yours. The Masters oh, of It was just amazing. I know you had a lot of pirates on that one that stole some of the thunder. And, uh, but it was a great idea. And well, uh, well you're, it you're was such a nice guy that you got all these directors, these egos to work work on it work on it for you up there in Vancouver <laughs> well it was so great to be able to get people like you and Stuart Gordon and Toby and Landis yeah. and all these people and just say what do you want to do do it if you can do it in this time and this budget yeah 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 do it yeah. and to watch you working so casually and confidently you you were in a really comfortable place, and I loved watching you work and learned oh, a lot man. from you. Well, nah, it's just I I knew what I I knew exactly what to do by that point in my career. I knew exactly 
<laughs> the script was great. Norman Reedus was just fantastic to work. Yeah. And uh, I'm so glad he's gone on to this kind of amazing stardom. Yeah. yeah. TV superstar. Yeah. That's great. But that experience was was terrific because I remember after doing the first one and we were picked up for a second season, I didn't know what to say, what to think about asking you. <laughs> and, you know, when you were making the first one, you would say, oh, this piece of shit, it's going to be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And then it became probably the favorite of the audience, your episode of Cigarette Burns. And when I asked you to do the second one, I was so delighted when you said, you know, I think I'd like to do that. Yeah. I hadn't directed in a while and I came back and did it. And it's, uh, it was interesting to do in the format. I was unfamiliar with, you know, television. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, we tried to treat it like a, a feature that just sure. happened to be on television. Sure. 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 So, but you did come back with the ward and tell me about how that came about and what that experience was like. I got a manager, so I'd try that out, Mike Marcus, and he was involved with a company called Echo Lake. Right, they manage me. And Do they manage you, really? Yeah, they do. Does Marcus manage you? Yes, he does. Uh, <laughs> tell him to go fuck himself, sorry. <laughs> I will. Just kidding. Uh, I, al um, I always do. <laughs> uh uh, so they, there was a script that they had that the, the head of the company wanted to do, and Marcus pushed it through, and I resisted, and I thought, okay. Now, I learned something, though. I can't make a movie and try to please somebody else. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, but, but I worked with Amber Heard, who is, I love Amber, and she's so talented. And it's not, she's not been cultivated quite yet. It's a natural talent. And she is great. I know that she's had a lot of personal troubles. Terrible controversies, yeah. And yeah, she's had rough times. But I loved working with her and I'd do it again. Well, I, I wanted to ask you something about the ward because all of your features have been widescreen. The ward, the ward <laughs> is 185. Money. Really? Money money it's not 185 it's super it's super scope ah, it's okay. cheesy version that cheesy cheese ass version of uh, <clears throat> of a widescreen it isn't really widescreen and right i mean it was just like i say it wasn't i didn't have that kind of control on uh, the ward Right. And uh, I should have, maybe I should have, uh, I should have resisted. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. You were trying to be a team player. There's... I was, was, and it didn't work out very well for me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like how it, it all ended up. It was, uh, I was unhappy with the first, the first movie I've made that I've really been unhappy with. Oh, I'm sorry unhappy. to hear that. That's all right. Yeah. So okay. well, you've got a great batting average. <laughs> but but uh you know onward. I mean, that's what can I how can I say? Well, let's talk about losing control a little bit because with the thing Why do you want to talk about that? <laughs> because I think it's really fun because you were in circumstances that you'd kind of painted yourself into a corner working with the brilliant Rob Botin, but his brilliance comes at a great cost. Yeah, so it does. It you does. were it you were making a very complicated film even without the physical effects. Mm -hmm. And then you had to kind of devote way more time to those effects than you expected. And the result, no, I mean, I'm... the best movies don't necessarily come easiest. This one went through a real pressure cooker, but oh my God, what a masterpiece. Oh, thanks, man. That's really kind of you. I uh, still, well, people true. who think it's a piece of trash. Uh, a lot of people think it's a piece of trash, but uh, that was a that was an eye-opening experience for me. Just the amount of attention that Rob required, I became a like a father figure to him, and he needed a lot of uh, 
attention and but the thing the the scope of it was so much bigger than anything you'd ever done before or anybody else had ever done before and the scope of the physical effects the practical effects were unchallenged i mean nobody had had gone this way so did you give rob his head in designing these things and say let me see what ideas you have or did you give him very specific guidelines well i contributed but i let him let him design it pretty much he had he had some specific ideas <clears throat> so i would you know some of the excessive ideas that he had i cut out a rotating room I got rid of. Um, he had the thing going up the wall and stuff. And I didn't want to deal with that. Uh, nobody could figure out one one part of the script was the thing under the ice in the middle of the movie. Nobody could figure out how to do it. So we dropped it and had to rework that area. Uh, and So uh, it's in a more general sense. There's the big uh, block of ice. But uh, yeah, well, it's on, yeah, under the ice all over, you know. So, well, it's interesting because the thing from another world, the Howard Hawks uh, produced film, is in Halloween. It's what they're watching <laughs> yeah. on television in 1978, yeah. and so you know another. I did not have any idea. I had no idea. Yeah, but Not obviously good. it was a favorite film of yours. Was love it that movie? I lo still love that movie. It's a great film. Was it your idea to remake it, or was it the studio that came to you? It came. They came to me. It was an assignment. A friend of mine from college, Stuart uh, Cohen, came to me, said, "Let's do redo the thing." <clears throat> first of all, <clears throat> my first reaction was, "Oh no, I don't want to do that." It's already a great movie, right? Because I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't touch that and what they did. But, you know, it's very much of its time. So all I could do was bring it into my time in the 80s. So. Which is much more faithful to the John W. Campbell story that it's based on yeah. who goes there. Yeah, yeah. That's what we went back to that. So I thought that's interesting. It's really complex, though, when you get into this business of uh, creature that imitates everybody, but how does it, how does it happen? Well, we didn't show it <laughs> because that's one good way out. <clears throat> you just showed it in stages. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what happened? You had a schedule going in and it soon became clear that there's no way you were going to keep that schedule. Well, we got close, uh, but the effects, they just kept, <clears throat> getting put off and put off. Uh, was just finally near the end of the, of the shoot, there was a, a whole like factory of people designing, right. designing monsters and parts of monsters, how monsters move. This is all rubber, you know, it's all unforgiving. All latex. Oh yeah. man, it's not like a computer. It's not like a <clears throat> computer-generated image. It's oh god, and it's on the set. You have to build the set up, get people under there, set fire to it. Well, I, I also I also remember that at the time you would not let any still photographers right. be on the set when there was a thing seen being shot. Um, you you said you can use frame blowups, but no yeah. unit photography. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you had a camera, a still camera off to the side, what you would shoot would look ridiculous. But yeah. through, through the camera lens, 35 millimeter Panavision lens, it looks great. Especially it's, under Dean Cundy's lighting. Yeah. That's correct. You know, you'll ruin my movie if you stand over here taking photos. So, yeah. Yeah. And you had everything locked away until it was time to do publicity. You yeah. wouldn't allow oh, yeah. anybody access to even the frame blowups. That's right. That's right. That's pretty great. Well, it was, but, you know, it was not a hit. And uh, I got fired off of, like I said, Firestarter and uh, went on. 
Well, I remember when the the thing came out and it wasn't a big success. Everybody oh. was more in the mood for ET from the same studio. That's right. That's right. And I remember saying to you, in ten or twenty years, this is going to be a classic. People will look back on this, and it's the only time I've ever been prescient. And I've said that before. <laughs> I'm not good at predicting the future, especially <clears throat> of film popularity. But that was true. It has become the it's classic. Amazing, it? it is truly amazing. It's amazing. But you know, I'm really proud of it. I love that movie. And uh, is that the one you're most proud of? I think probably that Halloween I'm really proud of. I'm proud right. of, uh, but for a number of different reasons, you know. Right. Uh, I'm proud of uh, uh, they uh, they live. I'm yeah. proud of uh, the Prince of Darkness for different reasons. It, you know that these movies have different problems to them, and making them and pulling them off is they look easy sometimes, but eh, 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 well, eh. Prince of Darkness and They Live also have politics and philosophy in their core i know i know but they let me do that that was i got away with it it was it's great i i love those movies before we get away from the thing there were three endings shot for the thing there were three there were three written i recall <laughs> i never saw them all but you told me there were three endings oh uh, well there was the a, time. you yeah, might have been that, bullshitting me but... no 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 there what was a were, what were the a, other options? There were a bill. It was the Bill Lancaster ending we never shot, where uh, some of the survivors are brought into another camp, and, and they say, "Jump out of the hell rescue helicopter and say which way to a hot meal." And they're they're presumably all creatures. And I thought, eh, nah. And I shot. Uh, uh, a, a close-up of Kurt looking like he might have been rescued or something in a warm place, and he's just staring from the experience. I don't know. I wanted it into my back pocket. And then um, there's the ending that you see. Those, that's the, those are the endings. The ending that's in the movie is quite cynical. Um, <laughs> since you shot you another... <laughs> since you shot another version, did you get much push from the studio to go with that potentially more satisfying to some people uh, to that ending? They never knew I had that other ending. Uh -huh. <laughs> they never knew that. What happened was they, uh, they got the bright idea that well, we should cut the film at, towards the end where uh, we don't have that final scene. Blow up the they blow up the creature. The, the place blows up. McCready and uh, Childs walk out in the snow and sit down. At the end. Right. And that was it. And they tested that. I said, okay, test. Didn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> because, so go with the one you want. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a movie about the end of the world. Right. It's that's what it's about. That's why it seems cynical to you, but it's just it's just realistic. <laughs> you couldn't find a creature like that. You really couldn't. And, so oh yeah, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, not at all. I, I I love getting insight to this movie that we've all loved for so many years that there are still unanswered questions. You know, is it Childs or is it McCready? I know I the answers, but I'm not going to tell any of you. And I don't want to know. No, you, of course you don't. It's not fun if you know. Exactly. And uh, it doesn't, this stuff doesn't last if you answer every question. Exactly. I mean, uh, we're telling stories, not. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, I've discovered the audience hates ambiguity, hates it, yeah. hates it. So shame on me again. No, because look, why do you think it's been so embraced over the years? Uh, partially the special effects, but the cast, the you know what it's about, how it's done, all of that. It's all in service to a great story. Yeah, it is a great story. I love that story. It's a great story and it's 
incredibly propulsive and compelling and mysterious and scary as hell. I need you. I need you in my life, Mick, <laughs> to tell others about this. <laughs> I'm right here. Well, wow. let, let's go back to the to the movie that we are celebrating the anniversary for. Yeah. How does it feel to have been the father of this series of stories that is three generations long so far? How does it feel? Well, it feels pretty damn good. Yeah. You know, it feels good. Uh, never, never thought it was going to happen. None of us thought any of that was going to happen when we made the movie. We were just a bunch of kids trying to make a movie. And uh, it caught something in the audience, which is the greatest. And off we went. I mean, that feels great, man. Feels just Part of the zeitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> William Shatner should be proud. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's amazing. It's great. It's terrific. So as far as Halloween movies go, and I'm not talking about the sequels to your film, but Halloween movies in general, what are your favorites? Oh, God. I mean, That's is it a question? Meet Me in St. Uh, Louis? Or, yeah. uh, uh, meet Me in St. Louis, did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite Halloween movies. Well, there really haven't been many, you know? Yeah. That's the thing. I don't know. I, I I don't have one really. How do you celebrate the Halloween on your own? I, I'm very quiet. Okay, I watch usually basketball songs. So I watch that. <laughs> I'll play video games or both. And if anybody comes to the door, that we have candy here. My wife goes down to the office and puts on a costume and celebrates and welcomes trick or treaters. And I'm I sit alone up here. And, in my domicile, very quietly. Well, you helped make a very American holiday international. So countries <laughs> like England and France and amazing, Spain, isn't it? They never they celebrated about Halloween. Halloween. They did yeah. not know. Yeah, they're clueless. So, how do you feel about being the ambassador of Halloween internationally? Oh come on! How do I feel? <laughs> How do you think? I feel great. great. That was a stacked question. Of course it was. Torment me here. It feels fantastic, Mick. You know that. Do you think there's a a future for the Halloween saga uh, to come? I know everyone says Halloween ends is the end of the saga, but we've been told that before. Don't you believe it. (laughs) Uh, uh, I think for a while... It's going to be the end for a while of motion pictures sagas. There are other ways of telling the Halloween story and other other venues. And uh, we will see. But I think you have to follow the Hollywood golden rule. If there is money to be made, somebody (laughs) will do it. Uh, speaking, speaking of which, the same studio that did the last Halloween triumvirate is remaking The Thing. Is that a remake, a reboot, a sequel? I, I can't House. really talk about that because uh, I've been I've been talking to Jason about that. Okay, well, but I, I don't I don't. There's not it's nowhere now that I know of. But ah, okay, so not even in the writing stages. No, no, nothing yet, nothing yet. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for being such a a good friend to the podcast and for your contributions to making our lives more filled with entertainment and thrills and chills and a dark sense of humor that I love. Now, hang on a second. Where did we first meet the very first time? The very first time. Where was I? It was in a tiny little recording studio in Hollywood when you were sitting behind a keyboard I was interviewing you for a magazine and you were scoring Halloween. Oh, really? I know where that is. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny little recording. Really? That was where we first met. And then we worked together on the fog at Avco Embassy. I remember you on uh, Escape. On Escape. Yep. And Halloween 2, I was the unit publicist. Yeah. Yeah. So we go way back. And then 
then I did the making of the thing. Uh-huh. So, wow. Wow. We've got a history. Ago. But you still yeah. have hair, and I hate you for that. <laughs> well, it's, thank it's you. a wig. It's a wig. It's been it's been great, and I, I love uh, your podcasts. Oh, thank you so much, John, and thank you so much for helping us out and being a part of this, and especially now that we're on our way out, being a part of some of our last few shows. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. Absolutely, my friend. You take care. All right. You too, and all the best to Sandy. And all right. Bam. Thanks, bud. Bye-bye. Right. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.